You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our list? Well, before I go there, um, Mike was actually on the show back in episode 33. So for anybody who has not checked that out, go ahead and check that out uh, after this episode, of course. But for anybody who's not checked out that episode or it's been a while, would you be able to kind of just give our the listeners you know, a little bit of uh, information on your background and how you kind of got to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, start off like a lot, of, a lot of people, you know, a, a job. I was always taught to get uh, good grades and get a good job. And, and that's what I did. I have a, a computer science degree. So I was actually programming. In the late 90s, I joined a startup called Web Methods that went public three years later. It was at the time the most successful IPO ever. It was really cool. Put a bunch of money in my pocket. It was really exciting. Stayed there too long. But then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad in 2004, and it really threw me for a loop. I mean, it was really hit me because I thought I was pretty smart. And I read this book and I'm like, man, I have no passive income, right? And so, because I had money in the bank, I came home one day and I told my wife I quit my job. And she thought I, I was crazy. I said, don't worry, we have plenty of money. I have like a 10 year runway. And so, you know, I took all these classes and seminars. I actually took a commercial real estate investing class. I flipped a couple of houses. I traded some stocks, some options. Uh, the big idea though, for financial freedom was the restaurants, obviously, uh, cash flow business. So I deployed my IPO millions into a restaurant franchise. And I did have about eight restaurants at a time. And I had a guy hired it all. And I was patting myself on the back in a state of semi-retirement and did what I want to for three years until the recession changed things a lot to the point where I made less money. Then I made no money. Then I fired the guy who was running everything. And now I was running six restaurants at a time. And then I realized I had to sell it. Long story short, I subsequently lost my IPO millions in the great restaurant debacle. And then I remembered, you know, flipping a couple of houses. That was fun, made some money. So I started flipping houses, flipped about three dozen houses. And so I'm working eight hours a week, making money on the house flips, losing money on the restaurants and basically making no money at all. And it took me several years to extricate myself out of the restaurants. And then, you know, I got into an apartment building in 2011. This was in Washington, D.C. It was a 12 unit and that in itself was a nightmare. I immediately regretted that choice. But after about a year or so, it kind of quieted down. I forgot about it because it's not nearly as exciting as flipping houses. And after a while, I was like, man, I am literally insane. Like, I don't know. This house flipping thing is not getting me any closer to financial freedom and passive income. But this apartment building was sending me like $1,000 a month. And I was like, huh, maybe I should do more of that and less of the other. And that's when I kind of pivoted and people right at the same time were asking me how I did this. And so I started uh, doing some teaching on it and I developed a course. And, you know, today we're one of the leading authorities on teaching people how to syndicate, how to raise money to buy apartment buildings, do their first deal and quit their job within a year. And we also, because we also buy apartment buildings, we also offer these investments to passive investors who don't want to be active in the business, but they do want to invest, get the benefits in the, the cash flow and the tax benefits. So and now you're all cut up. Awesome. Awesome. That's an awesome journey. And uh, I, I was invested in a syndicate myself. I was on the GP side and the sponsorship side. And I realized how quickly you don't have to do that much. If you do things right, you get the right people in place. 
when you have an apartment building. I was actually shocked. And every time I talked about it with people, I was like, yo, what do I have to do? Like, what do I, what needs to be done? They're like, nothing, nothing. And I'm like, what? I just didn't get it. It just, my mind exploded. So that's awesome. Uh, taking a look at the current environment we're in, interest rates are high. People are, you know, a recession may be looming over us in 2023. Um, how has like the macroeconomic conditions like kind of like changed your outlook, if at all, on multifamily over, you know, the coming years? They have not influenced my my longer term or even medium short uh, uh, outlook. The fundamentals for housing in general is very strong. Uh, the only reason you're seeing a pullback is because of interest rates. It's not it's not the the level of interest rates. It's the speed with which they have gone up. Okay, so we bought stuff. Everybody bought stuff and bought houses in 2016 at seven percent. No one thought twice about it. So it's not the level. It's the speed. And you can all what's happening right now is that lenders are pulling back. And they're not lending as much. So we used to get 80% loan to value. We we could finance part of our construction cost. And that doesn't exist anymore. Loan to value is a lot lower. Now, we saw this right after COVID. And really what happens is lenders are always trying to assess risk. And fundamentally, the reason that you can get 3.5%, 4% interest loans is because lenders perceive real estate as a low risk investment, specifically apartment buildings. And now they're perceiving a high level risk. And that is because they can't quite assess where it's going to end up and how fast it's going to get there. So it increases the volatility, just like it does in the stock market, and therefore the risk goes up, and therefore their loan-to-value goes up, and things of that nature. Now, we've already seen that. We saw it at, at COVID come back. It took about four months for some of the some lenders went away. Bridge lending went away, and it's starting to come back already. So we're seeing, we're seeing a reduction in prices really only because of the lending environment. And this is a short-term problem. The fundamentals in both single-family homes and, and multifamilies has not changed at all. Right. The matter of the fact is you can't build any more affordable housing. You can't, especially after COVID, when everything is sky high, you can really only build unaffordable housing. Well, that's not what the country needs. We need affordable housing. You can't build it. Therefore, you have a limited housing stock and then you have a growing population in general. But if you look at the south where it's warmer, the entire country is moving from both coasts and the north south. So all of these warmer climates are experiencing this huge influx of population growth. And there's no more housing. So what's going to happen to housing? It's going to go up. It's going to go up. It has to go up. There is more people that want limited housing and they're going to, and the, the one who can pay the most is going to win. And that's kind of what's happening right now. Okay, so it kind of sounds like basically it's just a short-term blip. The interest rates are causing people to pause, but the reality the situation is the fundamental supply and demands of housing in general, whether it be single family or multifamily, like you mentioned, is still very favorable for investors. It is very favorable to the investors, and, and and especially in this environment, which is inflationary. There's nothing better than real assets in general. Precious metals are real assets. They don't produce cash flow. They don't give you the tax benefits. So really, in an inflationary environment, real estate, anything that's real is good because it preserves the value, right? And so you see that in everything, everything that's going up, right? It's, it's going up. And so same as rents are going up and the value of the real estate is going up. And that is because of this cheap money we've had. And so in an inflationary environment, you want to hold real estate in, in general. And so you can see that in rents continue to go going up and prices, the value of real estate is going up. And again, the reason it hasn't gone up is because the interest rates have gone up also. So instead of it's like hockey sticking, like it kind of did kind of like between COVID, you know, and after after COVID and before interest uh, inflation really became a problem. It really hockey sticked quite a bit in, in the end. And so the, the interest rates have brought it, I would say, normalize it. But in the medium term, the long term, inflation is really going to drive up the value of real estate, both on the single family house and the multifamily house side. 
So my understanding is that rent growth is not outpacing inflation. How do you change your underwriting and how you go about acquiring properties to account for the lower rent growth, the higher materials costs, especially if you're doing any sort of like value add, right? The higher labor costs, materials costs that are all baked into that. Because really, at the end of the day, we're compressing our net operating income, which is never good for multifamily investors since we're valuing everything based on cap rate, right? So that compression of net operating income could really tank your value if you're not careful. So how do you underwrite deals today more conservatively factoring in all that, even if it is potentially short term? So I'll answer your question in, in, in a second. But the big thing you said is you have to, how do you, un, how do you change your underwriting? The point is you have to change your underwriting. Right. Are the fundamentals in the investment in the investment class still there? I think I've answered that. The answer is for me, yes, the fundamentals are there. But every time, every quarter, every month, sometimes the underwriting requirements change. Like, for example, after COVID, lenders all of a sudden wanted 12 months of interest reserves. That wasn't there before. So now I have to raise more money. And I know I get it back. But when do I get it back? I don't know. I got to raise more money and I'll get it back. So now I have to work that into the underwriting. Same thing here, right? Right after COVID, we didn't see inflation coming. So we just underwrote everything, you know, rent growth of two and a half percent, like we have done, you know, whatever, last 10 years. And all of a sudden, we're noticing rents going up by 10%, 15%, 20%. We're like, well, we're idiots for keeping our underwriting at 2.5% because we're losing deals. Because the guy or the gal with a sharper pencil is outbidding us. Why? Well, because they're not underwriting it more with 2.5% because obviously inflation is driving rents up higher than that. And they saw that coming before it needed. So we lost some deals because we didn't see that coming. Now, are rents going to, and they did go up and they, they, they probably exceeded inflation at one point. Now, they're probably not. I mean, how much longer can rents go up 20% of the year? They've probably come down a little bit. They've normalized a little bit, you know? So what should you underwrite it? Well, it, it's hard to say, you know, should you underwrite it at two and a half percent when inflation is 10%? Maybe, you know, it's very conservative, but that could cause you to lose some deals because the next person is maybe using 5% for annual rent growth. And so how you adjust your underwriting is really dependent on your risk tolerance. The point is you have to invest, adjust your underwriting. And what that does in this kind of environment, for example, if I can't underwrite with an 8% loan to value of both the purchase and the construction costs, and I can only underwrite at 65% and I can't finance construction, well, I need to raise more money. Therefore, I can't pay the same price that was here. I got to pay lower, right? And so if every buyer has to reduce their loan to value, no buyer can pay what a seller wants, okay? So the seller would just sit there and they'll sit on the market until they go, huh, that's weird. It used to work and it doesn't. The market has changed, right? And so, so the, some sellers that want to sell or need to sell will start dropping their prices so they can sell. And, and it changes constantly, like, like you said. It changes constantly. For example, when rents were going up after COVID, we saw rents going up so quickly that by the time we closed on a deal, the rents that they were getting, like that, that month, was already projected rents in five years, which of course we were underpaying for the value where we get because it was changing so rapidly. So we got a steal, right? Now, of course, it's reversed a little bit. If I had something on the contract and three months later I'm closing, okay, now it's not the same. Now the rents are actually come down a little bit, maybe, or or whatever. So you the point is this: are the fundamentals there in multifamily answers? Yes. Do you need to adjust your underwriting? Absolutely, right? So you, you have different levers to play with, and that's just a couple we mentioned. Something that I've seen, some chatter that I've seen on various social media platforms is that inexperienced folks buying large multifamily assets, whether syndicating or not, over the past, call it 12 to 24 months, are potentially in for a rough ride because typically you you do that 
3% annual growth and 2% on my expenses. But like, that's not the reality that we live in today. Have you seen any of that? Do you feel like there's going to be any sort of issues coming down the pipe with people just not being able to afford the properties that they acquired? Yeah, or do you I, feel I think, like if you bought so. at the right time, that rent growth exceeded fast enough that it kind of almost covered you? It depends, right? It depends on what time horizon you're talking about. In general, when you're buying a, a whatever, two, three, five, ten million dollar apartment building, you really shouldn't do it on your own if it's your first time. You really need an advisor or mentor or some network or all of the above, right? You need a little bit of help, right? Because because the, you're dealing with a lot of zeros. And so if you make a mistake, you could lose your shirt, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're not coming back from that, right? If you make a little mistake here and there, and that's one thing. But so you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose a lot of money. And so what invariable happens is that, especially when everybody jumps in, you know, right before COVID, everybody jumped in and everybody ran away, right? And then all of a sudden, oh crap, I missed the boat and prices are going like this. I better jump in. And what people are doing is they will go in there and they will project high rent growth. They will project low interest rates. And, and a lot of us you know, in the business are using floating rate debt. Floating rate debt is almost like a, a fix between fixed rate and, uh, and bridge debt, which the benefit of floating rate is that uh, it allows you to exit very, uh, gives you options for exiting. A fixed, fixed rate term locks you up for like seven to 10 years. But what if I want to sell next year? Well, I can't. It's just too expensive to exit the, the loan. So these floating rates are really attractive. Now, the, the, the experienced operators bought, bought interest rate caps, right? They're very expensive. You've got to factor into your underwriting, right? And if you didn't do that, you're going you're gonna to have a problem right now. Even people with a cap, as interest rates go up, and let's say you got, you're locked in 4%, the cap was at 6 okay? That's great. And maybe you even underwrite the deal at 5 or 5.5% just to be, quote, safe, okay? But when it goes to 6 it's going to do something to your cash flow. It's going to go down, right? And so even experienced operators are now looking at cash flow that is not as rich as projected, but at least there's a cap there. But now what if that cap expires? If you got yourself a three-year cap, that's better than a two-year cap. What are you going to do if your cap expires, let's say, you know, this coming year, right? Now you're going to buy a new cap. Do you have the cash for that, right? So these nuances and, in, in, you know, in our collective defense we have never faced interest rates that have gone up this fast. I mean, no one could have foreseen this from happening. So we got to give everybody a little bit of grace. The question is, you know, how did you approach this deal? Did you have multiple margins for error in your underwriting? Number one, okay. Number two, do you have a great team around you that can be resourceful when this happens? And so I do think that there's some fire sales that will be going because people will stop making money or start losing money. They're going to run out of cash and they're going to have to sell. I, I I didn't realize that you could purchase caps on your interest rate. Talk to us about how that works. You, you mentioned a two-year, three-year. I mean, what are how does that work actually purchasing the cap and what sort of costs are typically involved with something like that? Yeah, so I would say about two years ago when we bought a cap, I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say you got a you know like a $15 million loan and we could buy a two-year cap. And it's always 2% over whatever you're getting. Let's say it's four and you get a cap at six. That cost maybe $50,000 for a cap. And you're like, oh, that's a lot of money. Oh, let's work it in. Let's make the deal. Who knows, right? Like 12 months later, that same cap costs 10 times more. That same cap, the 2% cap, costs $500,000. And some of us simply worked it into the deal. We're like, well, we need this cap. I think we think interest rates are going up. And the reason they went up so high is because all the lenders were like, you know, what? interest rates are going up. And I think they're going up fast. Therefore, the cap's going to be really expensive. And so, uh, you know, a lot of our caps have triggered and now we're, it's, it's insurance policy, basically you're paying an insurance policy. And so whoever bought the other side of that trade is probably losing their shirt right now, 
Uh, and so that was a good thing to buy. But at one point, the caps got so expensive where you can't use that product anymore, that debt product. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if that cap now became a million dollars on a $10 million deal, you know, I guess you could put in your underwriting. You could, right? And if you can get a deal that works, then great. Buy a million dollar cap. Now you're, you're capped, right? It's just at one point, it becomes difficult to do a deal. And so people have to go, hmm, that's not going to work. So what should we do now? Oh, maybe we'll do some uh, pref equity, right? Which is equity, but it's 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 handled more like a like debt. You know, I'm paying someone a straight 9% and it's equity, but it's kind of like sort of like debt. And so now I can get my 60% loan to value in a traditional, then I got a little layer of, of preferred equity. And then I got my normal equity like, like we're used to, right? So how can we as entrepreneurs become resourceful to take advantage of the opportunity that's out there. And there is opportunity out there. Mm, very cool. I, I didn't I didn't realize that, that about the caps. I also didn't realize that the prices increased as fast as they did. But I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, who's on the other side of that trade? Is it the bank that's on the other side of that trade? I don't know. There's these derivatives consultant. They, they okay. have this whole thing with lots of very, very complicated calculus stuff that I don't understand. You know, it's like, it's like you get like life insurance and they have this black box you know, and they put in your blood and your age and your behavior and out spits a bunch of numbers. That's kind of what it's like, I'm sure. It's a magic sausage factory. I don't understand it either. So let's assume somebody purchased maybe at the wrong time and wrong time for a lot of different reasons. You know, prices are, interest rates are high, prices are high, whatever. They, they purchased at the wrong time. They 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 thought rents were going to appreciate faster than maybe they are. They thought material costs would not be appreciating as fast as they are. Interest rates are interest rates are going up. They have potentially floating rate debt that's going to kill them. Twenty twenty three is on the horizon. Everybody's talking about this big recession. Are we already in one? I, you know, whatever. What are some defensive moves? That somebody that feels like they're in this situation or they're almost in this situation or they're getting nervous, what are some defensive moves that people could be doing right now to free up cash and to hedge against any future adverse issues? Well, it it depends again on your time horizon, right? If you already earn a deal and you bought it two years ago and you're biting your nails right now, it's different than if you're buying a deal right now, right? I mean, if you're buying a deal right now, again, you've got to stick to your conservative underwriting across the board, right? Interest rates, uh, rent projections, escalating expenses, uh, cap rates are decompressing, like multiple levers you can pull in an underwriting. And you got to make sure you're relatively conservative. You can't be, again, too conservative because you're never, never going to deal done. Because in this business, we're not in the risk avoidance business. We're in the risk management business, right? If you want to avoid risk, don't even get started because you're not going to be able to avoid it. You have to manage that that risk, right? And so it depends on where you are, you know, even for the longest time, you never, you want to, you want to apply prudent underwriting, number one, you want to have a good team, number two, you need to have your education. If you don't have that, you need to know a little bit what you're talking about, but then you need to have enough cash at closing and you need to, you need to have reserves from operations that you're funding an escrow and emergency fund while you're doing that. So if you're getting into a deal, you can do all these things. The question becomes, what if you're already in a deal, right? Let's say you're, you bought it a year ago. And now you have a float, you know, floating rate cap, and let's say you only got a year, or you have no no floating rate at all. That's tough. It 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 really is tough, right? Because the worst you can do in any business is run out of cash, right? And that's that's the worst because cash. Here's the thing: you if let's say you have negative cash flow, and fundamentally the market is uh, is will correct, right? I can't sell or refinance because of the current lending environment. But six months later or twelve months later. 
if things stabilize, let's say it's seven or whatever, 8%, but it's stable, now my loan to value goes back to 80%, I can probably refinance or sell and get my principal back. But right now, I can't. So I have a problem right now. So therefore, if I have some money and I can ride out negative cash flow for six or 12 months, okay, that's what I can do. It gives me an option. The problem becomes if you run out of cash, because if you can't pay your mortgage, guess what's going to happen to the property, right? And that's kind of the worst case scenario. Now, playing out the worst case scenario, okay, the worst case scenario in that case is that, you know, your investors lose all the money. That's bad. The good news about that is that there's no personal guarantee for everyone. The limited partners are limited to their investment. If they invested $50,000, they will lose $50,000. That's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as getting sued for a million dollars on top of that. Okay, so the LPs are protected and the GPs are typically protected by getting non-recourse debt. So they can't get sued for the foreclosure just return to keys, right? So, I mean, typically in this business, it is very rare to have a catastrophic failure in apartment buildings, even in 2008. The default rate in the worst real estate market in history was 0.4%. You know, it was minuscule. And, that, and most of those happened in California and in Florida. So the probability of something getting to that point is minuscule because what will happen is someone will do a side deal and they'll call up their senior operator buddy and goes, I'm going to pickle here. What can you do for me? You know what? I'm going to buy you out. You're just not going to make any money as a GP. And I'm just going to step into your shoes and we're going to bring a bunch of cash and we're going to write the ship and finish your business plan. And we're going to make money. That's typically what's going to happen. So in this business, it's very rare that you have a catastrophic. In fact, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but who knows? We'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. All right. One more question before we kind of get into like, you know, how you could help investors and things like that. Like, so if you were an LP, right, say, say I'm an LP looking to invest in this environment, we, we just went through a bunch of great stuff that I imagine you're going to want to ask the general partners, the, the sponsors of the deal, if they have these things in place. Is there any other tips or things that you would say that an LP should be asking or be on the lookout for if they're looking to make an investment with a syndicator in this current environment? You know, as a passive investor, you should always care about losing principle or rather not losing principle, right? So this has always been the case. And even if when one talks to potential investors, the inexperienced operator will always lead with how much money they can make, right? And the, 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 the prudent investor doesn't really care about that as much. They really care about the risks. And now it's more apparent than ever, especially what's going on in the stock market right now, than crypto. People are like, oh crap, I can actually lose money, right? For a period of time, no one could lose any money. Right. And now I'm like, oh my, I can actually lose money. And so now more than ever, it's really important to ask the question what are the risks in this business? Any business, not just multifamily syndication, but what's the risk in this business? And what's the operator say? The operator says, I don't know, there's no risk. It's a slam dunk. You should definitely run the other way. You know, the operator says, well, gosh, let me tell you all the risks here. Let me, let me list them all. And then the next conversation, go, well, that's great. What are you doing to mitigate or manage that risk? What are you doing so that we're not going to lose any money? And then you can tell how the operator responds. If the operator doesn't know what the risks are, they're going in blind, right? If the operator knows what the risks are and not doing anything to mitigate it, they're stupid, right? If the operator knows the risk and are mitigating it, it makes sense to you and the opportunity is still good enough. You're like, huh, I think this person knows what they're doing, right? So it's it's really more asking questions around the downside. What could go wrong and what are you going to do about it? Because here's the problem as an investor, okay, fundamentally. Where am I going to put my money right now? There's literally no option. The only option is cash, which of course with 10% plus inflation is also an awful place. At least you can't lose it. Well, you'll lose 10% every single year. 
that also kind of sucks, but I guess it's better than losing 75% in Bitcoin, right? Or 25% in the stock market. And so the investor has this conundrum. What are they going to do with their money right now? And so, you know, we want to be able to help them with that. We want to, we want to give them high quality real estate investments, you know, that are solid where their downside is protected, but they also have potential for upside. That's awesome. That's good advice. And I think uh, if I'm making any LP investments, I'm definitely going to be asking about the downside risk because like you said, and so many other investors always say, you know, you have to protect the downside risk and the upside will take care of itself. That's what I've heard before. Um, so I know that you help sponsors, you help people get into deals and and there's like a coaching group that you have. Would you be able to kind of just take us through a little bit about what that looks like and how you help investors get into multifamily properties? Yeah, I think I think in when in a podcast like this, I'm typically talking to two kinds of people. I'm talking to active investors who want to be the entrepreneur. They want to look for the deal, you know, put the deal together, raise the money. And then there's the passive investor, which we're talking about here. They're like, you know, I'm a high income earner. I don't have the time. I'm not going to exit my business right now, but I would like an exit plan maybe in five to ten years, and I would like to make some investments to allow me to do that. And so um, I think the best resource, if if your listeners or watchers are new to syndication either as an active or a past investor, is probably to um, to listen to our, to our podcast uh, and, or possibly read my book. Um, and the best way to do that is to go into our Freedom Vault. So we have all these free resources we put into what we call the Freedom Vault. So for passive investors, we have the ultimate guide to passively investing in real estate syndications. For active investors, we have a free ebook, for example, that talks about how to raise uh, money to buy your first apartment building deal or how to analyze deals in 10 minutes, so resources like that. And so we don't, And so we have a link for, for your listeners. It's called thefreedompodcast.com forward slash tax for your audience. audience. So it's thefreedompodcast.com forward slash tax. And there's a link to our podcast, which is free, and then a link to the uh, Freedom Vault, which is also free. And that might give people a good, uh, a good segue into exploring this a little bit further. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to we're going to drop that into the show notes for anybody who does want to check that out. I know I'm probably going to grab the ultimate guide for the LP investors, read through that. Uh, so it's going to be awesome. Mike, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your knowledge and discussing kind of what's going on and what investors need to be aware of in this current environment. Been fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.